Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Depth Recovery, series of podcasts we're doing. They're trying to link up the world of depth psychology, specifically Jungian psychology, with that of the 12 steps. And today I got my colleague and friend, Corey Gamberg, and we're going to be talking about this book, War of the Gods and Addiction. C.G. Jung, Alcoholics Anonymous, and Archetypal Evil by David Schoen. And I don't know if I can speak for you or not, but when I found out about this book, I was, you know, quite excited. Mm. For good reason, just because it's, I don't know of any other work that does this. Mm. Um, but I don't know. It, it, um, I don't know. My second reading through it was um, a little crestfallen. I still yeah. like the book, but I, I don't like it as much as the first time I read it. I guess we can talk about that. How about you? Yeah, I'd probably agree. And I think that, I think we maybe have talked about this before, but I think the way that he, it seems like the information that he pulled from, from members of AA seemed to be very surface level members of AA, meaning that I'm not, I'm not sure that they would approach the big book or step work in the same light that we would in recovery. So I think that kind of reading through it a second time, that kind of stood out more. Um, And then I think, I think too, to your point, like when I first came to the book, I think I was still pretty new to Jungian psychology in general, some of the concepts and some of the ideas. So it was rather uh, exciting to see someone parallel the, the step process with that. And that, but I think like in so many ways that was more attractive at that point than the content. And now that like I've grown a little bit in understanding and read and studied a little bit more going back to it, it's not as exciting, still good and rich, I think for kind of a introductory text into linking the two things together. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess the first time was better than the second time, but I still like the book. What do you make of his um, notion of archetypal evil? I mean, that's kind of a move he makes. It's almost, it seems a little radical even for a union. So he's postulating that there's this, um, this kind of evil that's sort of beyond beyond redemption or perhaps beyond uh, integration mm-hmm. and that really the only thing that you can do about it is more or less stay away from it. Yeah. I, 
I think it's interesting. You know, one of the things I think is interesting that in the beginning of the book, it has the inner, the two letters that are exchanged between uh, Bill W. and Young. And I think this is an interesting point too. Like they've only, they only corresponded this one time. There are some ideas that Bill wrote some more letters. Well, there is a third letter has been found. Yeah. But Young never, course, never gets that or responds to it, as far as I know. And uh, it's interesting because I found, you know, in my searchings of AA and Young and this and that, I found some websites where people will claim that Young was influential in developing the 12 steps. And I think his influence is obviously there, but he was never really a part of building the 12-step process. They corresponded in these letters, but... And, and one of the things that stuck out to me in Jung's letter to Bill, to your point about evil, is he says something like this, right? An ordinary man not protected by an action from above and isolated in society cannot resist the power of evil. So it's really interesting to me because in some way, you know, Jung is saying that if we are not connected to the gods in some way that society is in its own way evil already and we are just more susceptible to that so the only way to succumb to or not to succumb to the evil is to have some relation to the higher worlds right right so he would say another way would be somebody like eddinger would say if you're not cultivating the ego self access mm -hmm then you're vulnerable. I mean, the, the sentence that Jung writes that really gets me is, it's related to the one you just read. Yeah. Um, I am strongly convinced that the evil principle prevailing in this world yeah. leads the unrecognized spiritual need into perdition if it's not counteracted either by real religious insight or by the protective wall of human community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's saying something pretty radical. He's saying that an isolated individual, I mean, this phrase is really interesting, the unrecognized spiritual need. Mm -hmm. So we have a spiritual need that we are going to um, respond to, whether we are conscious of that or not. And if we're unconscious of it, it can lead us to perdition, which is something like a kind of damnation. Mm. Um, and I think that he would say too, you know, Young is really one of the things he said in uh, that he wrote a small book called uh, it's really super thin, uh, the undiscovered self, maybe. And in that book, he talks about like the spiritual problem of our times and, and what he basically says as the spiritual problem of the time written back in, we'll say the sometime in the fifties is that, um, people are losing, this is really interesting in what we were talking about earlier today, but as people is people are losing their ability to be themselves, to be individuals. And at the time it was, everyone was falling into this herd mentality and these groupings and, and these different things. And um, so it, it's interesting to me that he says to, to Bill that the answer is community. But I think like when we, when we think about young, we have to think about a specific type of community. You know, this is a community that is made up of a multitude of personalities and, and individuated individuals. So people who have something unique that each provides something to the community and the collective instead of one having something over the others. Right. It's, it's, a, it's not 
a hetero, it's not a homogenous community. Right. Not subject to um, a group mind that is largely unconscious. Right. So these are communities that can chew on contradiction. They're communities that can discuss paradox. They're, they're communities that can wrestle with ideas and not find themselves, hopefully, in some sort of hierarchical rank. Yeah. They can tolerate difference and ambiguity. Yeah. And frankly, this is something that lacks in recovery. You know, (laughs) the recovery collectives and communities, and I'm probably as guilty of this as other people, but we, and this is part of the issues that we become very fixated in this idea of, well, this is what helped me. So this is what's going to help everyone. This is how we have to do it. And I think, you know, one of the things that when I was rereading the second chapter of the book, I can't remember it specifically, but he, you know, he basically says in some way, it's, it's not necessary, not necessarily like the, the behaviors of the person that we need to really get into, but it's the story of the individual, because based on the story of the individual, we can help that person in the unique way that they need help. And I think that's something that, uh, is something that, you know, in this idea of depth recovery would be, would be more prominent to really try to engage the soul of somebody uh, personally, instead of a blanket, this is what you're going to do. Or as we've talked about in other episodes, um, this is the way you must tell your narrative. Right. Your story must be told according to a certain template. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I think that I think that's one of the ways that soul becomes uh, or is kind of reentered into the recovery process again, as we start working with the individual in order to to get them to be a part of this collective, but with their unique kind of soul imprint or fingerprint on that collective. And I think we get a lot of good uh we get a lot of good, you know, uh, supporting casts in the recovery collective, if you know what I mean, you know, like here are my ideas, you're my sponsees, go share my ideas. And, and people really kind of struggle to, to fend for themselves and really make recovery something personal. And I think yeah. again, like in past episodes, we've, we've kind of discussed that maybe in some, in some roundabout way, but you know, that's, what's missing. And I think that when you add this kind of, uh, psychodynamic or depth psychological approach to the process it deepens it in that personal way mm-hmm. and it you know what else is really interesting too and this is kind of I, this may be off topic maybe not but a lot of the I, i've read this book a few times so I, i've got a bunch of notes in it and at some a lot of places i hinted towards ideas that i felt like corresponded to dislocation theory you know, especially even in this statement here that they must be in some sort of community, the protective wall of human community. You know? Yeah, no, I, I noticed that, too. In fact, I would say the sentence I read, you know, specifically. Uh, evil principle. Leads the unrecognized spiritual need into perdition. Um, applies now more than it did when this was written. Mm. Mm-hmm. So meaning that people are 
are isolated now in a way that they weren't in 1961. Sure. And so they come into uh, recovery. And, and, and when you just talked about, what was it, the undiscovered self? Yeah. Yeah, so they, they we're, we're just talking about this today. They often come to us without any um, way of understanding what's happened to them or even to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So they're, they lack a voice. And, and when they do talk about it, to your point, it's this templated narrative. It's not, you know, and I think Schoen really kind of gets to this in the, in the second chapter in so many ways, but it's really not you know, this is what I want to say. It's like, this is what I'm supposed to say. This is how I'm supposed exactly. to, this is what I'm supposed to answer with. And, and this is a bigger problem even than addiction, because, you know, it's even like this sometimes at, at you know, in, in groups, you know, I'll bring in poetry and to ask someone after a practice and, and reading the poem, you know, okay, what does that poem say to you? People can't even think metaphorically, imaginatively, you know, especially the younger crowd coming in 2021, 20, 22. Yeah, maybe they don't like poetry, right? But at the same time, we've lost this capacity to try to interpret things with our own voice. Yeah. And, and it's really, you, get, you think about what's lost in the sense of um, those people not being able to read a really good book, a really good fiction, and, and you know, bring it, bring the words off the page and imagine it. Like we've lost this capacity. Yeah. And we both have noticed that we're seeing this with the, um, with the big book itself. Sure. Like the imaginative capacity to enter into something that is 80 odd years old. And, um, certainly from a different culture, but, it shouldn't be that far, and is it speaking about the phenomena of alcoholism? It's, yeah. it's funny the way they talk about themselves too. That it's a kind of a um, a weird pastiche of clinical labeling, recovery culture, and maybe some pop culture mixed in. Mm. But it's it's almost like um, it's almost like some kind of pigeon language. Mm. Um, yeah and i think too like with the big book i think people i think people are afraid to try to reinterpret it or elucidate something out of it and change it um but i think that's part of you know when something becomes very dogmatic and very fixed and very rigid, mm-hmm. that, that's part of the response, you know, well, <gasps> he didn't go to confession last week. <gasps> yeah. And that person probably lived great the next week. He just didn't go to confession, but it's this thing now where, and it happens in our culture of, <gasps> he's not writing inventory anymore. He must be in a really bad place. You know, right. this might be off topic too, but you know, inventory in so many ways and I guess I could be totally wrong here and this might be controversial, right? But it just reinforces this old narrative, mm-hmm. you know, that you're a shitty person, you do selfish things, you're constantly lying. And it just reinforces that over and over and over. Um, 
personally, I got to a point where, and I'm more than willing to admit that I've been selfish or made mistakes or been dishonest. I'm more than willing to do that. But I felt that the, the process of that, it just, it just became so mundane and redundant mm -hmm. and just hammering in this old narrative that I was trying to change. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. No, no, no. no. It's, it's young kind of speaking to um, how does something stay numinous? How, yeah. do, how do we keep the doors open that fresh energies can come in? Yeah, yeah. And I think, too, like, if, even if you think about certain lines in the book where it talks about this notion, uh, you know, unless the alcoholic can experience entire psychic change. Well, they're saying right there, you know, unless your soul has such an experience that, you know, in alchemy, they would say you, you, you experience that death and rebirth, but it's, it's actually like you've died, you die multiple times in your life. Do you know what I mean? By, so, yeah. like, so, so you die to get into recovery, but then once you're in recovery, you're going to experience another death. And I think that's what keeps the numinous experience happening. And that's where people fall short because they're afraid of that death experience five years, six years, seven years into recovery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that in a lot of ways, what Sean writes about this idea of the persona is part and parcel with that fear because what happens is, you know, he's talking about the persona developing prior to the addiction. But what I'm talking about is the recovery persona that becomes established also becomes extremely dangerous. For the audience, let's break this down a little bit. So what does Jung mean about the persona? Yeah, so persona is just a Latin word that meant mask. And Jung basically said that each person will devise their own persona and it will be kind of made up of the way you want the other to see you, you know? So how I want to be interpreted, how I want people to view me, what I want people to think about me, that's all part of the persona. And the thing about it is that, you know, and Sean says this as well, is that the persona is not a negative thing. We all need to have a persona or two or three to some extent, you know, I can't come to work and talk to the clients the same way that I talk to my year and a half year old kid. That would just not make any sense and vice versa. I can't go home to him and talk to him <laughs> like I'm talking to a drug addict. So the ability to switch the persona as needed is very healthy. Now what, now what Sean says, and, and so in, in Sean's kind of idea of how the addiction develops goes in five stages. And the first one is you know, the ego's over identification to the persona. So this is interesting because, you know, like if we talk about the model of addiction, right, you look at the compulsion and we say, this is progressive, right? So I would say too, that the power of the persona is equally as progressive. Meaning when I start, you know, smoking pot 12, 13 years old, right? I'm able to go to my buddy's house put on the persona of Corey, the pothead, smoke pot, listen to music, eat a bunch of junk food, have a good time, go home, sleep it off. And I wake up and I'm not Corey the pothead. I'm Corey, my, my mother's son. I'm Corey, the baseball player, and, and so on and so forth. As the drugs progress, so as the allergy or the compulsion gets worse, yeah, so does the persona and my inability to remove it after the event. So now... I'm Corey, the drug addict all the time, 
Whereas I used to be able to take that off and come and go. Does that make sense? Sure. And I think so when, when Shom talks about the ego over identifying with the persona, that's what he means is when the persona actually becomes the way that the ego perceives the world all the time. And perceives itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then he introduces the concept of the false self. And what is the false self relative to the persona and the ego? So when Young, when Young talks about the self with a capital S, he, he's the first, well, not the first, but he's one of the, those earlier guys who is, is suggesting that the ego is really not in control. And there's a, there's a you know, I think Shom talks about the ego as like the uh, air traffic control center, right? But the self is kind of the uh, eye in the sky overseeing everything. And um, so I think when when we live in it with a healthy ego, which is something that we need, we're in relation to, again, what you said earlier, Edinger would call that ego self access. And that's with the true self. This is, you know, at some core level of my psyche, this is what makes me me. And the ego may not be totally aligned with it, but it's not working against it per se. It still has a ability to kind of poke its head out. Whereas the persona develops, equally so the ego the persona the self the false self so the persona creates you know this false self in the psyche that actually tries to combat the, the what Jung would call the true self so you could say that the false self emerges to the extent i identify with the persona because it's perfectly possible to live in the world knowing that I've got my Rothman recovery persona that I have to wear for my colleagues and clients. And I'm not over-identified with that. When I leave work, I can take it off. Yeah. I have to wear a somewhat different persona when I go home and deal with my wife. Mm -hmm. So this is my marriage for my husband persona. Mm -hmm. And to over-identify with any one of those starts introduces this element of falsehood that is uh, contrary to this this higher self which in young sense is sort of my um, spiritual helos the sure. the omega point of my psyche moving towards this better better part of myself or a more whole part of myself. Yeah. And I think that, and I think that to an extent, as the false self becomes a reality in the psyche, that's where those, that kind of idea of archetypal evil starts to rear its head. That's where I was going to go with this. Yeah. yeah that, that only really can come through once there's an over-identification with the persona and the false selves. Which is so interesting because Bill Wilson is so keen on uh, the paramount importance of being honest with yourself. Mm. And he even goes as far as to say, if you can't do that, you can't get better. Mm -hmm. So I guess in Jungian terms, I would say, if your identification with the false self is too great, then the and the only thing that's going to break through that is some sense of truth, 
for honesty, then it is perdition. Sure, I'd agree, yeah. And I think this is, this is the qualm with people when they go through the first step is they, you know, you try to confront them in this way of breaking them down or, or kind of melting them down in alchemical terms, right? But they see themselves, they're looking at themselves thinking that this is who I am. They don't see the false self. We, the objectionable person can see the false self, but they can't. And that's the, that's the difficulty in getting someone to really see the damage that their addiction has caused. Right. Um, um, I'm thinking there's somewhere in here where he says, I'd like to find it, but of course I don't have it marked. So it is in that chapter four okay. where, where he talks about uh, the, the phrase he uses. He says, yeah, here it is. It's on page 118, bottom of the page. Once one is touched by archetypal shadow, archetypal evil, the contamination, like radiation, creates a permanent vulnerability which is very dangerous and should never be forgotten. Mm. One should always be on guard against physical or psychological re-exposure. So... He's saying, really, that this, this archetypal evil thing is not something that uh, you can ever fully digest or, as Jung would say, integrate or get beyond. It is, it is out there in the world. It, is, um, it will kill you. It will, it will capture your soul. It will take you down. And in recovery, what we do is we cultivate the ego self axis and we also enter into community ideally a community of other people pursuing that same sort of relationship and that keeps us protected from the archetypal evil now he's talking in terms of uh largely in terms of the danger the ever-present danger of relapse that if we relapse we go back into this whole dynamic of false self and compulsion and all that yeah but I think he's also pointing to something bigger that we're vulnerable to this thing even before we relapse. That that that, that we can yeah. the, the archetypal evil, the false self, it can rear its head. It can find it can find traction or get a foothold in us, short of taking a drink. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I also think that it's really comparable to the idea of the archetypal shadow, meaning it's, it's, you know, to your point, it's never something that we're going to really beat or get over on, right? And the only, and you know, this is where I kind of like disagree with Sean, right? Is at the end of that paragraph, he basically says, and as long as you go to AA meetings and you share about the evil that was once in your life, you're going to never get, you know, in trouble again. And so he kind of just says, like, you know, go to meetings and share about it. But, you know, one of the things I think that is interesting is that when he outlines a, a kind of a Jungian approach to the step process, he makes the whole thing about continuously integrating shadow. So I think one of the ways to your point of, of kind of dealing with the archetypal evil is to constantly be talking about it. 
and it's different manifestations. It's different, uh, you know, currents that it arises through. Like, you know, I would say that archetypal evil is kind of somewhere in the, the beginnings of rid it's somewhere related to obsession. You know, it's, it's in there making those things arise. Um, so I think really it's involved in other process addictions. Oh yeah. Big time, big time. And I think too, that it actually is probably more deceptive to the addict or alcoholic in relation to a process addiction. Yeah, I think so too. Probably actually is more overpowering and more deceptive and more difficult to see uh, in relation to that. Yeah. I think we often see it, um, you know, when Don was alive and somebody would relapse and it would be somewhat surprising to the rest of us because of, uh, you know, how, how well they had been doing and so on and so forth. Yeah. He would ask, he goes, what was it? He goes, was it sex or was it money? And of course that's a bit simplistic, but when you think about some of those more notable, um, spectacular relapses of prominent people in recovery, there is this new persona that forms um, in recovery, a recovery persona that is, uh, it's shiny, it's attractive, or it's trying to be, it often is attractive because I think in order for it to really believe in itself, it has to get other people to buy into it. Um, It's authoritarian. Yep. Meaning it's got a sense of its own infallibility, its own importance. Yeah. And once that, that persona, that false self gets set up, then with that comes a, um, an enormous blind spot. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And that's kind of, that's kind of what he says in the second stage is that, when you build this persona that you want to present to the world, the opposite of that, which, you know, the young would have called or shown calls the shadow is, is going to then form itself because everything that doesn't fit the persona now is going to just be repressed down into the unconscious. So, you know, he's actually saying in, in so many ways, you know, throughout his kind of five stages, he's actually posing that this is how the shadow develops. Um, out of the idea that uh, whatever persona we become over-identified with, the opposite of every opposite to that persona is the shadow. Right. And that he makes this really interesting point, actually, when I reread this chapter, which is, you know, then the shadow, it's basically this kind of, this, this, this kind of tension that forms between the shadow and the persona. And they're just kind of at bay battling each other. You know, the persona is knocking down and, and the shadow's trying to push up and it's just this battle. And he actually says that the addictive process, whatever it is, drugs, alcohol, food, sex, whatever, forms as a way to relieve that tension. And I, I found that really interesting because, you know, if you, it, in, in big book terminology, you know, men and women drink essentially because they like the feeling. Well, that's the feeling is that that inner tension, this battle within me dissipates for a period of time because through the addictive process, whether I know this or not, consciously or unconsciously, I'm giving the shadow an outlet. 
I'm actually acknowledging the shadow. And it's just probably mostly unconscious, right? I'm actually allowing the shadow attributes to arise and live, if only for a slight period of time through this process. And then I try to stuff them back. Through the, the process of inebriation. Exactly. Yeah. So just to say it again differently. So I'm in this life where, I mean, usually it, uh, not for all addicts, certainly, but at least for a long time, there's an element of secrecy. So I have my shadow life where, you know, I say and do and act out these behaviors. And then when I'm not intoxicated, when I'm still trying to function, I have to live in total uh, denial of that thing. I have to wear this other mask. Mm -hmm. And what seems to happen is... Um, the, the, the shadow life becomes eventually starts steamrolling. There's just no energy left to maintain this right. to the world. Yeah. And so the lies and the cheating and the manipulating the money, it's just so overwhelming that when I die, it's the only time I get relief from that. Mm -hmm. After a while, I don't get much relief from that because the, the voices of that haunt me in my using. Yeah, yeah. And I think so. Yeah. I think what's interesting, too, is that he he, he makes this he, he makes this point where, you know, basically, you know, if I have a persona that says, OK, like you never lie, you don't steal, you're always right, you're never wrong. You know, the shadow attributes of that are just the total opposite. Right. So I want to steal. I want to lie. I want to fuck up. I want to make mistakes. So, you know, it's it's almost like. Or I want to trespass. I want to. I want to violate the taboos. Yeah, and you know, so that I think like part of it is like that risk of what's going to happen when I do that feeds into the addicted uh, the, uh, the addiction too. You know, it 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 brings this kind of level of excitement to the mundane, and I think that's something that a lot of people, especially like the younger crowd coming into treatment kind of speak to is like, oh, I wasn't doing anything. I played video games and then I get high and I like say, fuck it. And I go here and I do this and I go this and I, and then that, that goes for a little bit. And then to your point, it, the, that shadow gets too powerful. It needs to, it needs to kind of trespass into those behaviors more and more and more regularly. And then all of a sudden it takes over, but as it takes over, the relief of the substance actually dissipates. And I think that is really where someone hits a bottom, so to say, which is that I know this doesn't work anymore, but I cannot stop doing it. That's the right. you know, that's really. Right. I, I'm thinking of two or three folks who will go unnamed, <laughs> who, we, who we've worked with lately, who um, or who we know personally, who they, they, they do this in a way that, right until the very end they are their family doesn't know the mm. level the level of secrecy mm. and the level of cunning has gotten so refined mm. that they are they may even know that the gig is almost up in terms of what's going to get discovered in the bank account or the affair or whatever the hell it is and maybe that's what brings it all to an end they actually managed to do this forever. 
Like it's all that they've done. They have this sort of what's left of a persona, of a functioning persona that is just the thinnest pasteboard mask. And behind it is nothing but nonstop cunning, manipulation, hiding, secrecy. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most interesting quotes I think of Young is that he said something like, uh, you know, if you wear too many masks, eventually you're going to look at yourself in the mirror and you're not going to know who you are anymore. And I think that is really relevant to what we talked about earlier today being that kind of liquid individuality, you know, like that's it. You know, you try to be this person who fits in here and do this and, 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 you know, be fulfilled with that group or this group. But at the end of the day, you have no idea who you are because all you've you've tried to do is be someone else that you think the world is telling you to be. Right. And you have no real allegiances to community or self. No. And, 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 and it's just like you've thrown facets of yourself to all these people and all these areas and all these groups and then you've really not even stayed in touch with those people those areas or those groups so you've just flung your pieces of your identity all over the place and it's like you know you get to this moment now where your life is in shambles and you need to get better and like to your point earlier you have no voice there's no greater organizing aspect of the psyche anymore it's almost lost I don't, and I don't think, you know, Jung would ever say that, that the self disappears. But I remember you had said this actually to me years ago, maybe, which is, you know, the, the self, the soul, whatever you want to call it, right? That will come knocking, but only so many times. And, and you know, after you don't answer that knock three, four times, there's a potentiality that you lose it. And I think that's a real thing that we should be discussing with people in addiction in the sense of, you know, there's, o- there's only so many times the soul speaks up in some symbolic way or some gesture and says, it's time to fucking do this. And I'm ready if you're ready type of thing. Like there's only so many times that happens. And I think with some people that we've seen like these chronically, you know, people just chronically relapse over and over and over, almost treatment resistant. I think that's happened. Yeah, I mean, that idea, which was introduced to me by my own, my analyst, um, he said something like, I wish I could remember the phrase he used, but he said that um, if you don't, if you don't answer the call of individuation, he said, you know, he said, you're always free to not do it. Mm-hmm. You're always free to hang on to the the old way of being. Yeah. Um, but he says the consequences of that can actually be lethal. Yeah. It, it can kill you. Yeah. Um, and we certainly see these people. We see these phenomena. So this is just confined to twelve step stuff. You know, not AA and not. But we see people who, you know, they got a pretty bad run going, and they come into step work. And they do quite well, very well. And then they relapse. And, you know, if you do a little autopsy on that, you often see that 
you know, what Jung would say, the self-ego access. They were cultivating that relationship, and then they just sort of abruptly stopped, often because the crisis has passed or they feel better or they don't. Some part of them doesn't feel the need to go on. Sure. And then those people often come back and they will have, 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 will have had learned such a hard lesson that the next time it really takes mm-hmm. because their blind spot has been illuminated. Um, but then there are people that will do it again and again and again. And what you start noticing is if you, if you have the opportunity to work with them all those different times, is the kind of traction they got the first time or maybe even the second time. They're not getting that traction. Yeah. And you're, you're, you feel like you're dealing with something that's, um, I mean, I, I hate doing these, these AA quotes all the time, but that's when I feel like we're really looking at cunning, baffling, and powerful. Sure. Sure. That there's something going on inside of me that even my, my most sincere intentions cannot negotiate you know um at least with the egoic state of consciousness now i would say that if we could introduce those people to some sort of imaginative work and they could go inside and try to commune or dialogue with that cunning baffling aspect of the psyche whether it's they find some version of the trickster archetype or whatever mm-hmm. or yes yeah, satan or the devil but they actually have this ability to engage with it in, instead of just kind of struggling to try to figure it out logically if that makes sense and i think that that's where you know some of the more you know quote-unquote obscure ideas of young could really make a difference to people in recovery. I mean, you know, there's no recovery program that I know of that's really, that really is looking to take people's dreams seriously. But, you know, what if we track the dreams of those, those individuals and, and, and really worked with them and then, you know, did some active imagination with some characters or I'll tell you what I did in analysis last week, which was wild. It's maybe a whole different talk, but I did this thing called embodied imagination and embodied dream work really something it's this work developed by this guy named robert bosniak or bosnak maybe um really wild stuff and uh you know all i had from the dream that i did it with was about i really didn't have anything from the dream other than an idea of what it was about um and through this process entering back into the dream it opened up a whole world of stuff out of that little dream so i, I do think that there's there's more to be learned about those, those types of people, you know, but like typical hammering them with the big book and having them write another fourth step and this, that's not doing it. And that's nothing against that process, but it's, right. it's just the reality. It's like, you know, yeah, you've written five of these things. Maybe you'll see something new, but I don't know. Maybe we should do something totally different. Yeah, because I feel like that they are as much, you know, we like to say that alcoholism is a symptom of something deeper. 
Therefore, recovery is about illuminating whatever the deeper dynamic is driving the alcoholism. Sure. I'd say that these kind of people, these so-called treatment resistant or what we were talking about, literally 12-step resistant people, they are manifesting a symptom Mm -hmm. that is not just peculiar to them um, because it's coming from the collective. So it ha- it ha- it's trying to tell us something. Yeah, there, it's almost as if there's some sort of archetypal defiance in, yeah. the, in the psyche, you know, almost like this force that wants to, to stand off against something. Yeah. To prove itself or, or something like that's that. That's really, that's really, really helpful. Yeah. I feel like that right there, something just walked into the Zoom meeting. Um, yeah, I do because when you when you literally think of the sometimes what you're seeing behind the countenance of some of these people we're talking about, that's exactly what it looks like. It's this defiance, and we have a tendency to take it personally because we feel like the addict is saying to us, "Oh, what the fuck do you have? How are you going to touch this?" Mm-hmm. But actually, the thing that's saying that to us that we're taking so personally is an archetypal thing. Yeah, and they're taken over by it. They are taken over by it, and it's it's also saying something pretty harsh, like your recovery, meaning the helper, mm-hmm. your, your care, you know, your actual interest in me is not touching whatever this is. Yeah. Um, so it's throwing down a gauntlet for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that uh... because and the, the other thing about the trickster that's so interesting is if he if we're looking at him through the um, archetype of Hermes, yep. then he has this unusual ability not shared by the other gods of being able to go places that others can't it can go into the deeper parts of the underworld and and or the underworld itself and if you want to go there you need hermes to go there mm-hmm. and maybe in a way what we're looking at is we're looking at something saying you want to help then come along mm. Yeah, I mean, that's exciting to me, you know what I mean? Because it's something that's like, you know, and this is something that a lot of the Jungians talk about is, you know, well, maybe not necessarily in, in, the, in the idea of archetypes, but certainly in the idea of symptoms, you know, the symptom is the vehicle inward. If we can look at the archetype or the, you know, the archetype of defiance and go into it as a vehicle and, and really start to examine the kind of inner world of that archetype, that would be really interesting. So what's kind of interesting is you and I, to varying degrees, were, in, were possessed by that very same archetype. Absolutely. That's what I was going to say. Absolutely. Is that, you know, Sean really does talk about it in the book as in light of a possession, you know, that the drug addict is taken over. And, and you know, I think Young pretty much flat out says that to Bill, too. You know, he says the devil, you know, if, if they can't find something uh, of the higher worlds, they will be, you know, overtaken by the devil. So, yeah, I think that I too was in some level 
overtaken by some archetypal force, whether it was defiance, whether it's what Shone says. And I, and I think I, this is just my opinion about my experience, but I, I think that I was probably more under the control or possession of the archetypal shadow versus the defiance. But maybe again, that's my blind spot. And, you know, that's where the objectionable third can really come in and point something out. But well, I can remember having an attitude of you know every provider everyone even the people in aa that were showing me a kind word or whatever there was something in me that was sneering at them. sure yeah saying, this is all you have mm. that's supposed to help me mm. and i could keep it under wraps a lot of the time mm. in terms of my external behavior and how i treated those people but it was like this voice that was with me all the time, chattering about me and critiquing the person who was trying to help me. Yeah. Um, and, and recovery really couldn't happen. At least recovery didn't happen for me. Or when recovery did happen, that voice was in check. Yeah, I'd, I'd, probably, I'd agree with that. Yeah. I was a little shit in treatment. <laughs> yeah. Same yeah, I just totally like, oh, you want me to write on this paper? Uh, fuck you. You know, it was just nonsense. It wasn't anything serious. Um, and then, I, yeah, I guess I would agree. And I, well, you know, I was going to say for me, I think one of the biggest differences was this, this same thing that we talk about with clients and this like kind of uh, uh, ambiguity towards therapy. Like, you know, the therapist does not get what I've gone through. So when they try to help me through something, it doesn't really make sense to me. Going to analysis, that's different because the analyst has gone through their own analysis. So they've been through the process of individuation. They've worked with their unconscious. So what they say has some levity. When I got sober, that was the same situation with the person that helped me. But that's difficult to, to, to talk about now because we're trying to help all these people and still being faced with that archetypal defiance. So yeah, well, well, the tables are just turned. Yeah. Actually, we're those people with some of these clients that we, we, would ha we have a very hard time admitting that we, we're those people. And we sometimes commit, or I do, this unpardonable sin practically of rather than really wrestling with I'm not bringing something I'm just I'm just mucking around here mm. what I'll do is I'll blame the client right is it yeah right 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 which is interesting because again so to show its point being in recovery is this continual integration of shadow everything is about integrating shadow so he, he actually says steps four through ten are about integrating shadow. So, yeah. you know, he devises basically half of the process, you know, to, to that point. I think that's interesting. Like, you know, I do think that we don't really give this, like, uh, uh, we don't really give credit to the amends process as a way of integrating shadow, but that really is. And that might even be a more intense way of integrating shadow than the inventory. Yeah. You know, because you got to go and look at this person and say this stuff and, and then really let them respond in whatever way they choose. And you can't really do anything about that. So you're well, saying yeah, it's, it's, it's so far beyond your control. Yeah. I mean, I, ideally, when you're writing a fourth step, may, things may come through the pencil 
that are beyond what you what you think is in there because sure. you, you know patterns and such yeah. and sometimes when you read a fifth step i'm probably always when you hear it it literally sounds different than it reads mm-hmm. there's, there's a more there yeah but when you're making amends you're you've, t- you've jumped out of the airplane yeah and you I don't have any control over what's going to happen yeah, so I do think it's interesting that to his point of, you know, those kind of steps, four step, yeah, but really his idea that nine is really this ongoing integration of shadow, I think that that's a really good point. You know, I feel guilty now. I hope Sean doesn't watch this <laughs> or be saying the critical things at the beginning of the of our talk. Yeah. Um, but the one thing that I'm, I am left with is it's kind of a criticism, but it's also kind of an emergent uh, thing with my own, my own process, whatever, is that so much of this is about staying with the powerlessness. Meaning when I'm in active addiction, when I'm attached to a crack pipe, I'm definitely possessed. Sure. Right? And increasingly, to your point, the periods of time between the crack pipe, I may be flittering around with this persona that I'm trying to show the world, but that false self is even creeping into the times that I'm not using. Sure. It's getting bigger and bigger, and I don't have any power over it. I'm, I'm lying and doing all this stuff that's beyond my control. And then something about recovery involves acknowledging that powerlessness. But if I were to add more to the powerlessness, I would say that there was a powerlessness that I was trying to get free from before I ever took drugs. Right. That would be what Jung's talking about, about the unprotected person in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's me... You know, most of the addicts we'll talk about have some sort of thing in their biography where there certainly wasn't a, a self-ego access. Sure. And there was something deficient on the protective wall of community, to quote Young. Yeah. Yeah. So I experienced a powerlessness. It may manifest more in terms of alienation and shyness and fear and that kind of thing. I turned to the drugs and I experienced something of a nature of power for a while in that I am free from that sense of powerlessness of being shy and lonely and afraid. Yeah. Um, but then now I'm in recovery and I, I have to acknowledge that there was powerlessness before I picked up. There was powerlessness in the addiction as it progressed. And now I'm at an honest statement of powerlessness and here's where the problem becomes then this other thing shows up the ego tries to to maybe it's a new false persona but it says i got this Mm. so it almost seems like you know what what we hear about in the 12 steps so much is a certain kind of egotism that Sardella would say, taking credit for what you shouldn't take credit for 
that really only makes its appearance in the recovery process. It's actually, in a sense, in some sense, a new challenge compared to everything that we've gone through before. Well, right. And I think that kind of circles back to what I said earlier on about this idea that, you know, you experience that, that death in the beginning of recovery, but, but then there's this inevitable death some point in recovery, but this is what people fight against. Right. And I think that, I think that, you know, at least in my experience, yeah. Like when that happened to me five, six years sober, I actually, I guess I kind of had that same thought of like, well, I've done all this stuff. How could I just now think it's wrong or not, not necessarily think it's wrong, but like kind of poke some holes in it and poke some and look at the cracks in it and question it because I did all those things and my life got better. But to your point, I wasn't really doing anything like, you know, I was powerless over that. And if anything was helping me, it was really this concept of surrender and, and a higher power. Do you think that if somebody answers the call of individuation, mm-hmm. that that will make the door, that someone knock at the door more likely later on? So you're referring to something that happens five or six years in. In yeah. my, my own experiences, um, you know, so I got 25, 26 years in this. What has happened at certain junctures is there's a there's an acute crisis that yeah. looks like it looks like it's just external circumstances. You know, the loss of a relationship, the loss of a job. But in actuality, I'm being asked to die again. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that I I think that is true. And I think that our inability to see our lives in that constant death, rebirth kind of thing uh, is where is where we struggle with that and where we miss the opportunity. You know, that, you know, I think Jungians would say that that really is a moment that the soul Hillman would definitely say that is a moment that the soul is really showing itself a crisis, chaos, messiness, disgustingness, sliminess, right? That is an opportunity to go down into soul, but we don't, see, we don't look at ourselves like that, you know? No, we turn that into some sort of failure. We pathologize it. Beg your pardon? We pathologize it. Yeah, we pathologize it, and we seem to think that it means uh, that we're somehow fake that were fraud. It, it, it renders our previous efforts uh, fake. Yeah. yeah. And I think that when I had this moment, I definitely thought that about myself. Like, has all of this just been fake, you know, or is this just some necessary part of my ongoing growth and individuation that, you know, this, this persona, this thing, served me to this point and now it's not serving me anymore and yeah. and i think that's, that's really that. interesting i think this still comes back to some sort of identification with a persona probably probably always yeah i, I mean probably always we can only i mean i think that it would be foolish I, this is just my opinion right but i think it's I think an analyst right or someone that has gone through a lot of inner work and done a lot of inner work been through kind of their own individuation ongoing 
definitely builds that strength with the ego self-access that Edinger talks about, right? But I certainly don't think they ever, and they have a much more keen ability to respond from self. And maybe in some ways, Sardella would say, respond from heart awareness all the time. But I certainly don't think that they don't have personas. You know, I certainly think they still have, they have to do that. And at any point, they can still get caught up in that, no matter how much work or how, how much of a good connection they have to the self. Yeah. You know? It really, um, it's so, it's pretty uh, synchronous or something, but of late, what's happened to me is I keep looking at my life, the life that I've lived, in this kind of new light like all of a sudden i can see you know these these phases of my life where i'm really um i guess i guess what i'm seeing is i'm seeing the degree to which i identify with the persona sure. and what's painful about that is those are often these these sort of pivot points in my life where I perceive myself as being successful or even happy. And what I can kind of see now is no, you know, I got into this place where um, the ego had the opportunity to take credit for itself. And I kind of basked in that. And this was some sort of high point in my biography. And, you know, the truth is it feels good. And I think it would feel, it feels good for anybody. Sure. But you can't stay there, especially sure. if you're going to grow. Sure. And, um, yeah, it just changes. You can really see how you need that ego self-access to be strong, to be able to actually integrate those kinds of insights. Yeah, and, and so that's what I was thinking, too, is that, like in my experience at that moment, five, six years, right? Maybe what happens is, you know, maybe I'm not in full uh, relation to the self, right? But I'm, but I'm not as incapable of recognizing the kind of the fall of the persona. Like it was something that I saw happen over a, probably a six month, eight month course. And it was a very slow happening thing where it was just like, I began to question some things, some things became stale. And instead of like, again, reinstating this old narrative of like, you're not doing enough, you need to do more, go sponsor some more people, go write some more inventory. I kind of just followed it and like, let it take me somewhere. And uh, maybe that is what happens is we just build a better awareness from the perspective of self to see yeah that it's calling us or to see that it's, it's kind of longing for us. Yeah. That what beautiful language longing longing for us. And it's sort of asking us to leave something behind. Right. And, and I think that, and again, I, I just think that this, this whole death rebirth thing is so it's pivotal. I mean, if you look back at, you know, primitive cultures and primitive times. This was like a real thing. Like they would say that when you died and when you experienced that death and rebirth, you actually would see the world anew. Every, you know, everything you saw different. Well, think about that. I mean, that 
that is the process that the 12 steps is really trying to manifest in someone that, you know, you come in and you look at the world this way and now you do this work and you look at it this way. And that carries you for a little while. And then, you know, you need to change the way you're looking at the world again. And it's, I think personally, it's who's, who's ever willing to continuously die and continuously be born again. It's that person that sustains long-term recovery. And, and no matter how messy it looks, and this is what I was talking about in the car earlier about the color silver, right? You have to let it tarnish. It can't, it's not supposed to be perfectly polished and shiny and bright. That's, that's symbolically the persona, you know, and the, the silver has to begin to tarnish, but tarnishing is not a bad thing. It actually ages the silver. It makes it look more, I don't know, rich or just more uh, like, just, there's a word, it's like in my tongue, distinguished. It, you know, it shows character. And yeah, then yeah, yeah. if we don't do that to ourselves, if we don't tarnish the facade a little bit, if we don't have some crisis, if we don't have some messiness, it's like... The other thing can't shine through. Yeah, it, it, it stops something from happening. Right. And, and, and the persona is us trying to control the shine as opposed to letting the, the thing shine through. Yeah. I mean, really, in a spiritual sense... Um, it's just talking about being taken to the inevitable, the, the, the final death, when we really do die. Sure. And all of these sort of things we take for granted get stripped away, and the infirmities of old age, and the indignities of old age, and finally we're just there, you know, at the ultimate threshold. Yeah. It's interesting because one of when you talk to Sardello sometimes he um, one of his critiques you know so here's a man who's really versed in depth psychology but he's also about anthroposophy and he says that you know the the what he does but I do think it's built into Jungian psychology to a degree is Sardello believes that there's something coming at us from the future that it's a time current coming at us from the future, he calls it destiny, that's asking, um, it's bringing us into the future, it's calling us into the future. And at some point in the, you know, the, the danger of depth psychology would say is there's too much looking in the past. Sure. At some point now we have to start attending to the current coming from the future. Hmm. I would wonder if Sardello would say that once one has in some sense individuated, if that's the time then to start looking forward, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, Jung would say, you see, this is why I think it's a little more, but cut is all that. Jung says that when you don't fit anymore, when you're in that place you described over that six or eight months, yeah, that is the call of individuation. And and me looking back on my life at all these high points, yeah, is, those aren't times of individuation. Those are actually times of ego stasis, where I've arrived and I just wanted to stay like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, cruise into the sunset, but actuality, individuation creates a pothole. 
Yeah, and I think actually to some extent, and I could be totally wrong, and Sardello can correct me, but I think that Jung would say, you know, that the unconscious or the psyche is is teleological, and I think that's kind of the same as the idea of that in some yeah. way. You know, it, it's not the future isn't coming to us and and kind of calling us there, but the psyche through its own teleos is is trying to un, unfold its own process and lead us to it. So yeah. it's in many ways they're, 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 they are saying maybe one and the same thing, but with different language. But I definitely think that to, to the way that Sardello describes it was really, now that you said that, uh, is very akin to what happened to me. You know, it, it's just like destiny was calling me and how it was, is it was, it was getting me to question these things. It was leading me to new connections with people. It was leading me to, to new friendships, you know, and, and those things are what really as a result you know, uh, helped blossom this kind of individuation journey. Yeah, I think that's right. And, but, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, after this conversation, I, I really rethink this thing. Like I, I do, I do it to some extent think, okay, the 12 steps is a path that can initiate the individuation journey. After this conversation, I'm, I'm actually thinking that the individual individuation journey has to happen as a result of doing the 12 steps, it, you know, after the fact, after some time. But I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'd have to really like work that out and think about well, it. Well, it's, it's probably a both and. Yeah, yeah. But we definitely would agree, I think, that if, it, if you're thinking solely in terms of the 12 steps, you're probably, after a while, that's going to take the form of resisting individuation. Right. Because you become so fixed. Yeah, you become fixed. And it's supposed to look a certain way. Yeah. I mean, I just think that there is, you know, there's, there's a plethora of people that, you know, and I guess, I, again, I could be speaking out of tongue, but I think this is a lot of people's experience that, you know, they they suppress a lot of what goes on a couple of years into recovery because of, of, again, holding up the recovery persona. And that's just, and that's where the step process kind of gets it wrong. Like with that fifth or not the fifth, but that six and seven step idea of let go of your character defects. You'll never have them again. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's not, it's just not real. And uh. And it just that just reinforces a new persona and a new shadow in that moment. Right. Act as if you have no character defects. Okay, great. And then all the things that are opposite of that are just going to build another shadow. Right. It's not letting the silver tarnish. No, no. I'm really into that. We got to start using that. We got. We, got, we might need to learn a little bit more about silver and tarnishing. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, they they. I I think that uh. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess that's like the hope of all the, these conversations and the idea of depth recovery is that people will look at those moments of crisis or those moments of, you know, total collapse of what they thought recovery was supposed to be or who they were in recovery or this and that as not something to try to fix or solve, but something to go into because it's something that as a result of going into will transform yeah, and, and, you know, I, I think it might have been Cornwall, but one of these interviews I did where we were talking about, you know, the present crisis, 
which in a way is the backdrop of everything that you and I are talking about, uh, Joe, sure, and James. He, they're saying that what's what's happening now is everything is liquefying, and somewhere in some nodal points on the in the psyche, ideally, there's going to be a new dream. Right. Yeah, you were saying. Yeah, and there's going to be a new mythos that's going to emerge out of this, a new a new symbolism that is going to be numinous enough. Uh, for enough people that we will will be able to move forward with that we'll be able to grow in, in a new consciousness we'll be as at mercy as as much at mercy of the shadow force I mean I kind of believe that I kind of believe that uh, something is now I'm really glad we got to that place about the trickster because something now is trying to, it really feels like that. It's trying to speak to us. We don't quite have the ears to hear it. Um, and it can't be something old. I mean, this is a great Sardello point. If it's something from the past, then it's not properly initiatory. The solution to these problems cannot use the same thinking that got us here. We have to actually, in order to get a new capacity we have to step into a new, there has to be a new death and rebirth. Yeah, and I think to, to plug the Alcyon Center, I think that's what we're doing there in so many ways is trying to put a language to that new mythos. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, trying to figure out, because, you know, that that's to, to that point too, is that it, it's not, it's something that is going to need new everything. You know, yes. we, can't, we can't speak about what that's going to be with dead language. No. You know, and that's, you know, that's just a whole other topic. But, you know, we, we, can't, we can't speak to what's, what's forthcoming and arising with old language, to Sardello's point. It, it can't be old traditions or old initiations. It has, so everything has to be new. And I think at the Alcyon Center, uh, with with the work of uh, Sardello, that's what we're kind of trying to figure out, and not necessarily what the language is, right? But to your point, we're trying to figure out how to listen to it. That's exactly right, because the language will probably we may name the same being, mm. but it won't be the same. It won't be the same relationship. Yeah, and it'll be about the way. It resonates and yeah. versus, uh, you know, old definitions or old constructs. Yeah. I feel like we verged quite off there, but it came back together, kind of. Oh, yeah, no, no. Hey, look. <laughs> Conversation called depth recovery. <laughs> I mean, yeah, right. I wouldn't be surprised if next time we go, I had a dream. And maybe we should. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should, if it's, if it's that kind of dream. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, Corey. Well, thanks for having me. Yes, thank you for being available. All right, till next time. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at 
resistancerecovery.com.